Lord Jesus, would You bless us with Your presence as our teacher. I so often think when I open Your Word, Father, of Mary sitting at Your feet, and that's what we're doing tonight. We sit at Your feet, Jesus, to hear Your teaching, to hear Your words. Because we know that Your Word does not come back to You empty. And I pray tonight You will fill us up to the overflow so that the Word we hear will be a Word that goes out, strengthening, encouraging our faith, yes, Lord, but also bringing truth to those who walk in the dark. Thank You, Father, so much for giving us Your Word. And Holy Spirit, we just seek Your teaching now in Jesus' name. Amen. No doubt you recall that touching moment in the 1965 classic animated holiday special, A Charlie Brown Christmas. Lucy Van Pelt is trying to cheer up Charlie Brown. It's Christmas and he's depressed. And she says to him, I know how you feel about all this Christmas business, getting depressed and all that. It happens to me every year. I never get what I really want. I always get a lot of stupid toys or a bicycle or clothes or something like that. Charlie Brown asks, what is it you want? And she responds, real estate. Real estate. (laughs) Lucy would love tonight's study because it is real estate. And I want you to know that it is real estate. This is the coming estate of the people of Israel, their inheritance, their allotments in the land. And this is absolutely fascinating. Follow along. We're going to pick it up right in verse 13. We did the first 12 verses talking about water from the temple on Sunday. If you didn't get a chance to hear that, I'd encourage you to. But we finished talking about that on Sunday. We pick up in verse 13 and it says, Thus says the Lord God, This shall be the boundary by which you shall divide the land for an inheritance among the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions. You shall divide it for an inheritance, each one equally with the other. For I swore to give it to your forefathers, and this land shall fall to you as an inheritance." Now, just those two verses might cause some to think, well, let's just gloss over this quickly, but you don't want to do that. No skimming the surface here. It is a profound conclusion to this prophetic book. In fact, it's the perfect conclusion. Every time we finished a book in our study through the Word, I felt the same way. Wow, God ended it exactly the way it needed to be ended. He just has a knack for that. The author of life and all, you know. But this conclusion is stunning. And it brings together truly all of the prophecies of Ezekiel. All of the reason, all of the history it comes to bear right here in this last chapter and a half, more than just real estate, it is God's declaration of inheritance for His people Israel. He says here, I swore to give it to your forefathers. There in verse 14, the phrase I swore is actually, I lifted up my hand. Yad, which is hand. Nasa, lifted up. My hand was lifted up. The NASB translates this, I swore, because that's what it means. I lifted up my hand as a solemn oath. I solemnly swear, as we might say in a courtroom, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. And we need God's help. But He doesn't need anybody's help to keep His word. I solemnly swear this inheritance. I swore it to your forefathers. I'm going to see it through all the way to the end. That right there is enough for me. To know that God is going to do what He's about to describe here. 
He lifts up his hands. He lifts up his hands eight times in Ezekiel. Only two other times in the rest of the Bible is this phrase used. Once by Abraham as he lifted up his hand in a solemn oath to the Lord. A second time by Isaiah. I'll read in just a moment. But the rest of it all takes place in the book of Ezekiel. Five times in Ezekiel chapter 20 alone. We studied through Ezekiel 20. You may recall, that's the chapter where God details Israel's rebellious past. He recounts verse by verse how they rebelled against Him. And yet during that recounting, that history of rebellion, He says five times, I swore to give you your inheritance. You rebel against me, but I swore that you were going to come back into this land. You continue to rebel, and I swore five times. Five, by the way, is the number of grace in the Bible. That may be significant. Throughout their defiant history, the Lord lifted up His hand. He's faithful even when we are faithless. That should tell us something about our own personal lives. As rebellious and stupid and sinful as we can get, when His hand is lifted up, Or perhaps we could say when His hands are stretched out, He keeps His promise. And His promise to you is salvation in Jesus Christ, even for your rebellion, if you would but trust in Him. Even after Israel was, for the most part, driven out of the land, although there's always been a Jewish presence in the land, her right to the land has never been revoked. God has never rescinded that promise of inheritance because, as you know, Romans 11.29 says, the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Once He says it, He's got to do it. He must follow through and He will. The other time His hand is lifted up is an interesting verse. Isaiah 49, verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up My hand to the nations and set up My standard to the peoples, and they will bring your sons in their bosom, and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders. The nations are going to see to it in the end that everybody from Israel, all the Jewish people left in the world, get back to the land. And why would they do that? Because God swore they would. Because He lifted up His hand. So this is the declaration of inheritance. We're going to read here about 13 allotments of land. Joseph gets two, all right, for Manasseh and Ephraim, his two sons, and Levi gets one, which is unique because in the original setting, Levi did not get their own land. They they got the Lord. They got to dwell in and around Jerusalem and then in different places throughout the land, but they never got their own inheritance. They will now, as we will see. So God begins now by setting the boundaries of the region of Israel's inheritance, beginning in verse 15. Picking it up there. This shall be the boundary of the land. On the north side, from the great sea, that is the Mediterranean, by way of Hetlon, to the entrance of Zadad, Hamat, Berotah, Sibraim, which is between the border of Damascus and the border of Hamat. Hatzer Hatakan, which is by the border of Horon. The boundary shall extend from the sea to Hatzer Anon at the border of Damascus. And on the north, toward the north, is the border of Hamat. This is the north side. And if you have no idea what he's talking about, that's okay, he does. (laughs) He knows where all these places are. Now I can tell you, we're pretty sure that Hamat here is Hamah, which is in northern Syria today, on the Orontes River, 
which is roughly 50 miles north of the border of Lebanon and Syria. Syria wraps around Lebanon to the north. 50 miles beyond the northern border of Lebanon is Hamat, which itself is 50 miles beyond the northern border of Israel. 100 miles north of Israel today is the northern boundary of the land. Make room because there's going to need to be some room as God gives out these areas of inheritance. Verse 18, the east side from between Haran, Damascus, Gilead, and the land of Israel shall be the Jordan. And from the north border to the eastern sea, you shall measure. This is the east side. The south side toward the south shall extend from Tamar as far as the waters of Meribat Kadesh, which is, by the way, Kadesh Barnea for you Bible students where they first enter the land. To the brook of Egypt and to the great sea, this is the south side toward the south. Verse 20, the west side shall be the great sea, the Mediterranean. From the south border to a point opposite, Lebo Hamat, this is the west side. Now, let me point a couple things out for you here. It's interesting to compare these boundaries, first of all, to the ones doled out to the, to the different tribes back in Numbers 34, verses 1 through 15. Those uh, land allotments were handed out to each of the 12 tribes, and they're very similar. A lot of, a lot of similarities here, um, but there are some exceptions that you might want to note. If you do a comparison study in Numbers 34, the tracts run from south to north. In other words, the land is given to each tribe going from the south up to the north. In this uh, rendering, it's all given from north to south. Why? Well, it's kind of an obvious explanation, south to north, because that's the direction they came from. They came from Egypt in the south and on up. And so the land allotments were given south to north. Now, God is speaking to a people who are exiled in Babylon, and when they return, they're going to return by way of the north, so they can be thinking north to south. Although, you know these inheritances, these allotments are not given after Babylon. They are for the millennial kingdom yet to come. Another difference here, in the Millennial Kingdom, all of these tracts of land are parallel and equal in total dimension. So as they spread out from the top of the land to the bottom of the land, you will see them all spread out. Seven different allotments given to seven of the tribes. And then five down at the bottom with Jerusalem and the mountain of God right in the middle. From north down to south, and every single allotment, with one exception, is exactly the same. All 12 tribes, 13 actually, uh, with the exception of the Levites. So 12 of the tribes get the exact same amount of land. The Levites have a smaller portion, but they're very close to the Lord. In the kingdom, there will be a central allotment set aside for the holy city, right in the middle of the land, and you'll find that fascinating when we get there. Also, in the kingdom... The allotments, and this is just a a possibility, a guess. I'm going to throw this out here. I'm not going to try and be dogmatic about this, but it's possible that the allotments may indeed run all the way from the Great Sea, the Mediterranean, out to the Euphrates River, not just to the Jordan, but pushing out to the Euphrates. Now, why would you say that? Look again at verse 18. Verse 18 says, The east side from between Horon, Damascus, Gilead, and the land of Israel shall be the Jordan. From the north border to the eastern sea, you shall measure, this is the east side. So, to the eastern sea. Well, what's the eastern sea? The word there is Kadmonai plus the word Yam. Kadmonai meaning not eastern, but it means ancient. 
Kadmonite, ancient. And the word Yom meaning sea, but the word Yom also has been translated, can be translated, mighty river. So from the Mediterranean Sea, or from the north border, all the way across to the Kadmoni Yom, the mighty river? Perhaps. Part of the reason I even bring this up is because it would square with the land covenant that God originally made with Abraham. And that land covenant, covenant he said in Genesis 15:18, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So God gave the land to Abram and his descendants on that day. That's the land covenant, Genesis 15. So he's given them all the way out to the Euphrates River, and so it's very likely here that verse 18, the uh, talking about the Eastern Sea, is actually speaking of the ancient mighty river, the Euphrates. But I'll let you uh, chew on that and figure it out in your own biblical study, and please let me know what you come up with. Verse 21. Verse 21, continuing, says, So you shall divide this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. You shall divide it by lot for an inheritance among yourselves. So that once they're given their allotments of land, within those allotments, they would divide up within each tribe by lot. So the tribe of Reuben would divide up by lot, the tribe of Judah by lot, and on down we go. You shall divide it by lot for an inheritance, verse 22, among yourselves and among the aliens who stay in your midst who bring forth sons in your midst. And they shall be to you as the native born among the sons of Israel. They shall be allotted an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And in the tribe with which the alien stays, there you shall give him his inheritance, declares the Lord God. Now some believe in these allotments of land, again north to south, that the very coastline of Israel is going to change. Now, there's going to be topographical changes in the land. We've talked about those changes. But the coastline today, which is somewhat oblique, will actually be changed and run more vertically north to south, which would then even out the allotments of land. But what's interesting here is the word aliens. There are going to be aliens on planet Earth in the Millennial Kingdom. And that should surprise you. It surprised me. Why? Well, the word alien in the Hebrew is ger. It's a good word for an alien. Ger, sojourner, foreigner, or in other words, non-Jews. The non-Jews in your midst. And that tells us a couple of fascinating things. Number one, this inheritance is inclusive. It is not exclusive only to the Jewish people. But God says if a foreigner, if a gur, if a stranger, a sojourner wants to come and settle, say, in the land that is allotted to Judah, they can settle there. They can buy land there and they can maintain that land throughout the kingdom as the inheritance passing it on to their children and their children's children if they so desire. Leviticus 19.34 gives us an, an insight into God's attitude toward the alien. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. Now what might that say about immigration reform <laughs> in America? I'm not going to get into that. I don't want to talk politics but I've pointed this out every time we've seen it, and i got to say it again. The Lord has a concern for the alien, because the alien is a human being. 
The alien matters to God. Regardless of any of our politics, the alien matters. The foreigner. And God's love for all people, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, God's love for all people, His concern for all people, rises above the difficulties and the legalities of nations. And in this case, He's telling Israel, you're getting your inheritance, yes, your allotments of land, far out, and the alien can live there too. And he gets to have his allotment of land. But, there's a big difference in the millennial kingdom from the previous kingdom of Israel. What's that? In the previous kingdom, while the Lord truly has a concern for the stranger to be well treated in ancient Israel, the law did not allow the stranger to buy land. The law did not allow the foreigner to acquire land and to keep that land to themselves. In the millennial kingdom, if someone wants to permanently settle among the tribes of Israel, someone wants to raise their children there, they can buy in. And once they do, they receive the full inheritance among the Jewish people. Pretty cool. And it tells us something else. Prophecy students. This is the first place in Scripture that clearly indicates at least some non-Jews will survive the tribulation. Because there are non-Jews present to have an inheritance to buy aspects of the land. So we know when we talk about Revelation 7 talks about the tribulation saints and talks about all those saints, people who come to faith in Jesus. They've missed the rapture of the church. But during the tribulation, that time of God's wrath being poured out, people will clue in. A massive number of people will clue in. Most of them will be martyred for their faith. Some will survive. And those who survive, along with the surviving remnant of Israel, will be ushered into this thousand-year reign, this millennial kingdom, and will be there present as aliens, as sojourners, foreigners. They now can come in and live in the land if they desire to do that. Chapter 48, verse 1. Now, these are the names of the tribes from the northern extremity, beside the way of Hethlon... To Lebo Hamat, as far as Hatzer Anan, at the border of Damascus, toward the north, beside Hamat, running from east to west, Dan gets one portion. By the way, if this is allegorical, why the specificity? We see God literally tagging places and drawing boundary lines. It's really ridiculous to say this is a metaphor for something else. It is what it is. Dan gets their portion. Verse 2, beside the border of Dan. So Dan's at the very top, northernmost allotment of land, from the east side to the west side. And then Asher gets one portion, right below Dan. Beside the border of Dan, and then Asher, on the east side to the west side, Naphtali gets one portion. Verse 4, beside the border of Naphtali, from the east side to the west side, Manasseh, one portion. Beside the border of Manasseh, from the east side to the west side, Ephraim, one portion. Beside the border of Ephraim, from the east side to the west side, Reuben gets one portion. And beside the border of Reuben, from the east side to the west side, Judah also gets one portion. Skip down to verse 23. We're just going to continue on. So we're going to skip a section here. We've got seven tribes down, seven portions, one after the other from north to south. We're going to skip over the holy city. And pick up immediately south of that, verse 23, as for the rest of the tribes, from the east side to the west side, Benjamin, one portion. Beside the border of Benjamin, from the east side to the west side, Simeon, one portion. 
Beside the border of Simeon, from the east side to the west side, Issachar, one portion. Beside the border of Issachar, from the east side to the west side, Zebulun, one portion. Beside the border of Zebulun, from the east side to the west side, Gad, one portion. And beside the border of Gad, at the south side, toward the south, the border shall be from Tamar to the waters of Meribat Kadesh, to the brook of Egypt, to the great sea. This is the land which you shall divide by lot to the tribes of Israel for an inheritance, and these are their several portions, declares the Lord God. So again, the length and width. He goes through all 12 tribes, going all the way down. 13 if you include Levi. Straight down. And they're exactly the same from the far north of Israel to the deep south of Israel. Seven north of the mighty holy mount of God. Five south of it. And the mountain itself with Jerusalem is right there in the center of the land. We're going to see that in just a minute. On that mount, by the way, is where the Levites will get their portion, as we'll see. But the most interesting inheritance to me, and perhaps to some of you, belongs to an infamous tribe. Keep your Bible mark there and go over to Revelation chapter 7. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. These are the sealed Jewish witnesses. Evangelists, you might say, of the tribulation. And these are the ones that God seals to go out and spread the gospel during that actually first half of the tribulation. But two tribes are missing here. Two tribes are not named in the listing of verses 4 through 8 that I just read. One of those two tribes is easily answered it's Ephraim. Ephraim's missing, but Ephraim is represented by Joseph. Because Manasseh is mentioned and Joseph is mentioned. And if you know your Jewish history, you know that anytime you're talking about the tribe of Joseph, you mean Ephraim and Manasseh. They were Joseph's sons. And Jacob came along when he blessed his boys and he said, Joseph, I'm going to give your inheritance to Ephraim and Manasseh. I'm going to bless your boys. And they now become tribes in the tribe of Israel or in the people of Israel. But when you hear Joseph... It could be talking about Ephraim and Manasseh. When you hear Ephraim and Manasseh, it is originally the tribe of Joseph. Okay, So we know that Ephraim is represented by Joseph here, but someone else is missing. Dan is not there. The first tribe given an allotment of land in the Millennial Kingdom is not sealed in the Tribulation. Not even mentioned. Not listed. Why? Well, you can't make a witness out of someone who has no faith. We see that in the church. People who claim to come to faith in Jesus Christ, but where there's no witness, there's no faith. And where there's no faith, there's no witness. The ability to witness and to evangelize on behalf of Jesus Christ comes from the faith that you have. And if you don't believe in Him, we're not going to witness for Him. And if you do believe in Him, if you have faith in Jesus, then the natural fruit of that faith should be a witnessing, should be a desire to tell people about the Jesus that you so well know. 
So what are you saying about Dan? Well, a couple of things that we see where Dan is faithless. Number one, Dan's idolatry. Of the tribes of Israel, Dan was perhaps, if not the most idolatrous, they were the first tribe in. They ran after idols and bought into it hook, line, and sinker. Deuteronomy 29, verse 14. The Lord made this promise to all the people of Israel. He said, Not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not with us here today. So Moses is speaking. He's got all of the people of Israel there before they go into the land. He's talking to them all and he says, We're making a covenant here. But it's not just with us. It's with all of our offspring. This is for everybody who's ever been a part or whoever will be a part of Israel. He says in Deuteronomy 29, verse 18, so that there will not be among you a man, a woman, a family, or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. That there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. Verse 21, he says, The Lord will single him out for adversity from all the tribes of Israel according to all the curses of the covenant which are written in this book of the law. In other words, if a man, if a woman, if a family, if a tribe turns away from the Lord to serve idols, to serve other gods, the curse comes. And the curse did come. In their original estate, Dan was given a beautiful place to to, to dwell. A beautiful allotment of land. Not where they ended up. They were given land on the Mediterranean coast, a a beautiful coastal land, and Dan rejected it. Ah, we don't want to live here. We want to live there. They were dissatisfied with the gifting of God. You ever ever dissatisfied with the blessings God's given you? You know what He's provided for you in your life. You say, well, that's great, God. Thank you so very much. But, I'd rather have this over here. And I think I know a little better, Lord, than you do as to what I need and want. And that's what Dan did. We're not happy with this land. We want to live up north. And so they moved everybody from Dan up north and they settled the city of Dan in the far north of Israel, the northernmost city, and it would be the first city to go down in the Assyrian captivity. They also would be the first city to chase after idols. Something else that's interesting about where Dan was originally placed in the kingdom of Israel, they were right there close to Jerusalem. They were in the heart of the land, close to the temple, where the temple would be. Surrounded by their brothers, Israel. Ensconced, if you will, in faith. But they said, no, I don't want to be in the center. I'd really rather be on the outskirts. Gang, when you go live on the outskirts as a believer in Jesus, you're putting yourself at high risk. The best place to be for a follower of Jesus Christ is right in the middle of everything going on in your fellowship. In the middle of all of it. Surrounding yourself with other believers. Surrounding yourself with prayer and the ministry of the Word. Surrounding yourself in worship right there as close to Jesus as you can possibly get. Because there, it's a whole lot harder to fall than it is when you're out there on the edge. Counting yourself among those who say, I don't really need church. I'm good. No, you're not. You're in the same place as Dan. You're in a place of danger. Dan was the place where Jeroboam set up golden calf worship when the kingdom split north and south. Dan and Bethel. 
And up in Dan, you can see the place today, it's called Tel Dan. It is an ancient archaeological find. It's an amazing place to see in Israel. And when you travel up into this rocky old remnant of a city, you can see the actual, uh, the actual altar where the golden calf sat. It's there. And they worshipped the very thing that, that the Lord got so angry about back at Sinai, Mount Horeb. Dan fell to idolatry. They were the first tribe to go into captivity. Now you might say, but wait a minute, wait a minute. I understand the curse being on Dan for being an idolatrous tribe. But didn't all the tribes go into idolatry? Didn't everybody in Israel fall apart eventually and and worship idols throughout the whole land? Wasn't that an Israel problem, not just a Dan problem? And you're absolutely right. Everybody did. So Dan's idolatry may be one reason why we don't see them sealed, listed, marked here. But it's possible. It's possible in the tribulation that the offspring of Dan will go after another god. They'll do it again. And I'm hearing his name whispered. Not only Dan's idolatry, Dan's infamy. Dan's infamy. Now listen. Old Jacob, when he was blessing his boys, said in Genesis 49-17 of Dan, this is the blessing, Dan shall be a serpent in the way. (laughs) Thanks for that, Dad. He shall be a horned snake in the path. Wonderful. That bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. Off you go, Dan. (laughs) That was his blessing. That was the prophecy of Jacob over his son Dan that would be a prophecy felt across the entire tribe and down through history. And because of that prophecy, the old rabbis believed a false Messiah would come out of Dan. Who would that false Messiah be? Antichrist. And there are many Bible scholars, and I is one of them, who thinks that it is more than likely that Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan. I know there are a lot of books out there right now saying, Antichrist is going to be a Muslim! It remains to be seen. But I know that Daniel, the prophet, in Daniel 11, verse 37, had this to say about the Antichrist. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. And that's a very telling statement about this so-called man of peace, this man of lawlessness, truly, this one who will set himself up to be God. It tells us, well, he doesn't desire women, which either means he's just too busy, or perhaps something else. Says he will not even regard any other God. So he's not going to be idolatrous. He's just going to think that he's God. He's going to magnify himself above all. But note this. Daniel writes, he shall not regard, quote, the God of his fathers. That's a very Jewish phrase. That's what the Jewish people say about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God of our fathers. And so if Antichrist, if this man will not regard the God of his fathers, who might the God of his fathers be? And the question is, could that mean that he is Jewish? And out of literally the tribe of Dan. It's possible. 
He may be the serpent in the way, the horned snake in the path. You put that together and it's, it's interesting, if nothing else, I think a bit compelling. But either way, at the midpoint of the tribulation, because of idolatry, or because of Antichrist, or because of something perhaps we don't know, Dan as a tribe is the only tribe not sealed, not called up to witness during the tribulation. But listen to what old Jacob said to Dan at the tail end of this interesting blessing, this prophecy. Genesis 49.18, he said, For your salvation I wait, O Lord. Dan, you're a snake in the path. Son, you're going to be a snake. But for your salvation, Lord, I wait. Back in Ezekiel 48, in verse 1, we see Dan's salvation as he is the first tribe listed among the rest. Whatever else happens, we know that Dan will receive his place. He will be restored, the tribe restored fully in the Millennial Kingdom. The grace of God. Now, we're going to go back to the Holy Mount. We skipped over it to look at the land allotments. Back in verse 10, we begin to read about the Holy Mountain. The Holy Mount of God in the Millennial Kingdom. Man, if you thought our discussion of the Temple was impressive, if you thought Sunday's teaching on that mighty river was stunning, the Holy Mount of God is a mind-blower. It is incredible. And Ezekiel's not the only one to talk about it. David wrote in Psalm 2, verse 6, speaking, hearing the Lord, overhearing the Lord speaking, God says, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Psalm 24, verse 3. He writes, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. And by the way, that counts out every single one of us. It counts out everybody who has ever lived with the exception of Jesus, who has clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands that have scars from the nails and a pure heart that was broken so that he might save us and get us up that mountain. Psalm 48, verse 1. The sons of Korah wrote this, Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised, in the city of our God, His holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. That's prophetic. Because right now, Jerusalem is not the joy of the whole earth. It's the heartburn of the whole earth. It's the frustration of all world leaders. It's the burr in the saddle of our current president. (laughs) Jerusalem. Netanyahu. It's a frustration. Psalm 48 speaks. Beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth. There is a day coming in that millennial kingdom when the whole earth will look to Jerusalem. Will look to the mount of the Lord and say, Oh, it's just beautiful. That's where I want to go. That is the place to be. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 2, verse 2, said, It will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. 
and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream into it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us concerning His ways and that we may walk in His paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Micah came along and prophesied the exact same thing. Micah chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. Isaiah and Micah were contemporary prophets and they both spoke these exact same words in their prophecies. All the way at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 14 verse 1, John says, Then I looked and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with Him 144,000 having His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. What an epic scene. This amazing mount of the Lord and Jesus standing right up there. And He's going to. This is real estate, okay? This is going to happen. Of all these, however, Ezekiel gives us the fullest description of the Holy Mount. Go back to verse 8 and listen to this. Beside the border of Judah, from the east side to the west side, shall be the allotment which you shall set apart, 25,000 in width, and in length like one of the portions from the east side to the west side. And the sanctuary shall be in the middle of it. The allotment that you shall set apart to the Lord shall be 25,000 in length and 10,000 in width. Important note. In my Bible, I lined through the word cubits because it ain't there. 25,000 cubits ain't so big. It's all right. You know, my hometown's about that. It's not cubits. It's far more likely, and more conservative scholars would agree, that the word, the measurement here, the 25,000 here and the 10,000 here, is not actually cubits. It's measured in rods or reeds. Either one works. Well, what's that? Back in Ezekiel chapter 40, when we started this whole process a few weeks back, Ezekiel said, The Lord brought me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze, with a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. The Hebrew word for rod is kane. It it is also translated reed. And the measuring rod itself, 10 to 12 feet. And most believe that the reason why the word cubit is not here in the Hebrew is because he's not talking about cubits. He's now measuring out the city. You need something a little bigger than a measuring tape to measure this holy mountain. So he's using the rod. The rod which would be much larger. To make it easier to understand and think this through, 25,000 reeds or rods would be the equivalent of 50 miles. 10,000 reeds would be 20 miles. 5,000 reeds or rods would be 10 miles. And the city is being laid out here for us to understand, I believe, in miles. The width and the length and the breadth of it is much more than perhaps some have thought. Look at verse 10. The holy allotment shall be for these, namely for the priests, toward the north, 25,000. We're talking 50 miles. Toward the west, 10,000 in width. So 50 miles wide, 20 miles, 50 miles long, 20 miles wide would be the allotment for the priests. Okay? That's a nice, generous allotment. If you do that in cubits, it's a real tiny little plot of land. Good luck, guys. I believe it is rods or reeds. He goes on and says, 
toward the east, 10,000 in width, toward the south, 25,000 in length, and the sanctuary of the Lord shall be in its midst. It shall be for the priests who are sanctified of the sons of Zadok, who have kept my charge, who did not go astray when the sons of Israel went astray as the Levites went astray. It shall be an allotment to them from the allotment of the land, a most holy place by the border of the Levites. Alongside the border of the priests, the Levites shall have 25,000 in length and 10,000 in width. The whole length shall be 25,000 and the width 10,000. Moreover, they shall not sell or exchange anything, any of it or alienate this choice portion of land for it is holy to the Lord. So that can't be sold to the alien or the foreigner. That's got to stay among the Levites. Verse 15, the remainder, 5,000 in width, which would be about 10 miles, and 25,000 in length shall be for the common use of the city, for dwellings, for open spaces, and the city shall be in its midst. These shall be its measurements. The north side, 4,500, which is 9 miles. The south side, 4,500, another 9 miles. The east side, 4,500. And the west side, 4,500. So 9 miles around. And we're talking about Jerusalem proper. I'll explain this better in a moment. The city shall have open spaces on the north, 250, which is half a mile. On the south, 250, another half mile. On the east, 250, a half a mile. And on the west, 250, a half mile. So a half mile of extra space that runs all the way around Jerusalem proper. And verse 18, The remainder of the length alongside the holy allotment shall be 10,000 toward the east and 10,000 toward the west. It shall be alongside the holy allotment. And its produce shall be for food, or shall be food for the workers of the city. The workers of the city out of all the tribes of Israel shall cultivate it. Now listen to this. The whole allotment shall be 25,000 by 25,000. You shall set apart the holy allotment, a square, with the property of the city. 25,000 by 25,000 is speaking of this mountain gang 50 miles long by 50 miles wide 2,500 miles square is the city the holy mount of God now let me explain this a little little better for you Jerusalem proper sits to the south of the temple mount much like it did in David's day you realize that there was the temple mount that David bought and they put the tabernacle up there in the Ark of the Covenant, that was to the north side, and then you came actually up to that from the city, which the whole city was down to the south. Right? So that's what it's going to be like in the Millennial Kingdom. You're going to have the allotment for the priest. You're going to have the temple and the temple complex on the north end, and the city now comes down on the south end from it. Looks a lot like it did in David's day. In fact, itself, the city itself... um, is 100 square miles within the larger mount of God. The holy mount of God rises high in the middle of the land, as Isaiah called it, the chief of all the mountains. And what you've got to imagine here is you're, if you're in the land, you're looking at this mountain, it's a mountain that rises up and it's 25,000 miles square. This is a big mountain. On top of the mountain is Jerusalem, is the city. On top of the mountain, north of there, probably in an elevated place, is the temple complex. And the Levites and, and those living there as well. You've got to keep in mind Zechariah's important prophecy that the land is going to change. 
Things are going to be different. Zechariah 14.10, all the land will be changed into a plain from Gaba from to Ramon south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. But let me explain a little bit further. Imagine this mount as a, as a 2,500 square mile plateau divided into three sections. Big square plateau. The north section, 50 miles across and 20 miles uh, wide, is the priest's portion. That's what's talked about in verses 10 through 12. So you've got the priest's portion on the top part, the northern part of this plateau. The sons of Zadok, they live there. Not the Levites. The Levites went astray. The sons of Zadok remained faithful. And so they have a special place to serve the Lord in the temple. The center of that region has the temple complex with the sons of Zadok living right there. Next, just south of that, the Levites have their allotment of land. It's 50 miles wide by 20 miles, uh, 50 miles long by 20 miles wide. That's talked about in verse 13. The southern section is 50 miles wide from one side to the other and only 10 miles long dedicated to Jerusalem and its pasture land. So that's where the city of Jerusalem is in that section in the south on this great mountain. Verses 14 through 19. The chief of the mountains there is in the very middle of the land and now after describing these three sections up on top of this massive plateau... Ezekiel goes on to describe what we could call the prince's estate. The prince's estate. It is the single largest inheritance in the entire land. It is the only one that is not equal to the rest of the inheritances of the twelve tribes of Israel. This inheritance is bigger. It belongs not to a tribe, but to an individual. It belongs to the prince. Verse 21. The remainder shall be for the prince. On the one side and on the other of the holy allotment and of the property of the city. In front of the 25,000 of the allotment toward the east border, the west and westward in front of the 25,000 toward the west border. Alongside the portions, it shall be for the prince. And the holy allotment and the sanctuary of the house shall be in the middle of it, or in the midst of it, exclusive of the property of the Levites and the property of the city, which are in the middle of that which belongs to the prince. Everything between the border of Judah and the border of Benjamin shall be for the prince. What does this mean? (laughs) It means you've got this massive plateau in the middle of the land. From the plateau, 50 miles out to the west is the Mediterranean. 50 miles out to the east is the Euphrates or or the uh, eastern border of the land. What does that mean? That entire region belongs to the prince. That whole area. 50 miles wide by 50 miles long this way, 50 miles long that way. My friends, it's 5,000 square miles of inheritance for the prince. It's a huge belt of... It's the Bible belt. That's what it is. If you look at at all the allotments laid out, right there in the middle is that belt, the biggest belt of land, and it belongs to the prince. It's huge. It's incredible. And you know I believe Jesus is that prince, the prince of peace. He is the prince talked about here in Ezekiel. He is the prince there in the kingdom. This is his holy allotment of land. Now, a couple things to note on this. 
in Jesus' second coming, it's going to be a bit different than His first coming. In His first coming, Jesus said, Luke 9.58, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. First time, Jesus came in humility. He was a homeless man. He rested wherever His friends put Him up for the night or out under the stars. But He did not own a home. He didn't have a wife. He didn't have much but just the clothes on His back. And that was in His first coming. In the kingdom, He'll have His own 5,000 square miles of land to roam free, should He desire to. And it's an inheritance game. Wait, that's weird. Jesus has an inheritance? Yeah, He does. Isaiah 53 verse 12 tells us how He earned it. Therefore I will allot Him a portion with the great, and He will divide the booty with the strong, because He poured Himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet He Himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So Jesus gets His share. And it's right in the middle of the land. So you have this holy mount, 2,500 miles square, plus the prince's estate, which runs the 50 miles out to the west and 50 miles out to the east, and it's pretty impressive. But there's something more impressive to come. Read on. Verse 30. Verse 30 says, These are the exits of the city. On the north side, the 45,000 by measurement, that's nine miles, shall be the gates of the city. Named for the tribes of Israel. Three gates toward the north. The gate of Reuben, one. The gate of Judah, one. And the gate of Levi, one. On the east side, 4,500 cubits, another nine miles, shall be three gates. The gate of Joseph, one. The gate of Benjamin, one. The gate of Dan, one. On the south side, 4,500 by measurement, shall be three gates. The gate of Simeon, one. The gate of Issachar, one. And the gate of Zebulun, one. Verse 34, on the west side, uh, 4,500 shall be three gates. The gate of Gad, one. The gate of Asher, one. The gate of Naphtali, one. The city shall be 18,000 round about. And so what this is telling us is, again, Jerusalem proper rests to the south there of the Temple Mount, as in David's day. And this is talking about the city itself, not the Temple Mount Complex, Not where the temple is. That has its own gates. This is the city now that has its own wall. The gates running around it in the Millennial Kingdom. Three gates on each side. A hundred square miles within that city, within the gates. So you have the Millennial City there. You've got the massive highland roundabout with awe-inspiring and breathtaking beauty. Beautiful in elevation. But there's something more amazing. Something we won't see in the Millennial Kingdom, and it's the New Jerusalem. And I just want to point this out by comparison. At the end of the thousand year reign, New Jerusalem is described, and it is mind boggling. I just described to you a huge mountain standing up, plateaued with with these three allotments on the top, the temple uh, complex up there, and and the priest's place, and and the prince has his land going out to the right and to the left. But Revelation 21.15 tells us, John says, the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city, and its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with a rod. 1,500 miles, not 50 miles, 1,500 miles, its length, its width, and check this out, its height are equal. 
It's height. The city is as high as it is wide as it is long. It's not just a city four square. It's a city four cubed. It's massive. It's absolutely huge. It's not 50 miles wide, 50 miles in length. It's 1,500 miles in length, breadth, and height. This amazing cube. It's not a moon. It's not a space station. It is the new Jerusalem. And just like the beautiful river in the Millennial Kingdom that we talked about on Sunday, this holy mountain in the Millennial Kingdom is an actual mountain, but it's a smaller representation of the new Jerusalem that will come later. And as we said Sunday, God just keeps getting better and better. There's always more to look forward to. He's never boring. He doesn't stop and go, there you go, 50 by 50, enjoy. Because that's as good as it gets. I'm sorry, I am just tapped out on creativity. (laughs) That would be me. The Lord is never tapped out. Ezekiel tells us the gates in both cities, both the millennial capital and the new Jerusalem, bear the names of the twelve tribes of Israel as God continues to keep His covenant with Israel. It bears the names of Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, represented together by Joseph, by the way. So there are 12 gates, 12 tribes, and one of those gates just says Joseph, and that's for Ephraim and Manasseh. But Jesus said in Matthew 19.28 to the apostles, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed Me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, Last thing to note here before we finish Ezekiel and this evening. Feinberg tells us that rabbis of the 3rd century had a saying. And the saying goes like this. Three were called after the name of God. The righteous, the Messiah, and Jerusalem. Three were called after the name of God. The righteous, the Messiah, and Jerusalem. That is, the Lord has lent His name to these three. Number one, the righteous. Isaiah 43, verse 7 says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Are you called by His name? If you are called by the name of the Lord, you are called to be righteous. If you bear the name Christian, you are called to wear it in righteousness and in holiness. Not like the world. And from time to time, the Lord pauses me in my hectic, worldly schedule and reminds me of this fact. I am called to righteousness. I am called to holiness. And I I know we talk about this a lot, but hey, it's Bible. We should look different. We should act different. We should think different. Including being among the most humble of all people on earth recognizing that any righteousness in us is Christ-given. But that is our great pursuit, to be righteous and holy before the Lord, because we bear His name. Those who are called by My name, the righteous, they wear the name of God. 
Secondly, the Messiah, Jeremiah, chapter 23, verse 6 says, In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. That phrase, the Lord our righteousness, the name of Jesus in the millennial kingdom, the Lord our righteousness is Yahweh Sidkenu. Yahweh Sidkenu. The name of God is the name of Jesus because Jesus is God. So the righteous bear the name. Messiah truly bears the name. And Ezekiel chapter 48, verse 35, speaking of the Messiah, by the way, says the city shall be 18 round about, and the name of the city from that day shall be, the Lord is there. The Lord is there. The third one is Jerusalem. God gives His name to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city, will be called Yahweh Shema. Yahweh Shema. The Lord is there. The Lord is there. Well, why would they call the city Yahweh Shema? Because Yahweh truly is there, present, the Son of Man and the Son of God, all in one, Jesus Himself. Yahweh Shema. Will be present in that glorious city. Jeremiah spoke of this as well. Not only did he say that the Messiah would be called Yahweh Sidkenu, he said Jerusalem would be. Jeremiah 33.16 In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety and this is the name by which she will be called. That is the city, Yahweh Sidkenu. Why would they call Jerusalem Yahweh Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness? Because as you're going up to Jerusalem, up that holy mount, your eyes are fixed on Jesus. Because it's Jesus people will be going to see. It's Jesus people will be going to hear from. People will be going to to learn from. To sit at His feet and hear teaching from His own mouth about what righteousness truly is. In that day, the world will have the opportunity to be like Mary and to go up to Jerusalem and sit at His feet. Do you know what that all means? That means that from the rapture forward, we will always be with the Lord. That from that moment on, there will not be a time when we won't be present with Him. When we won't be aware of Him. The constancy. I pray for that. I don't know if you do. Do you pray for that constancy in your own faith? Just go, Lord, I just don't want to forget. I don't want to get busy you know, with making lunches for the kids and, and forget. Even for a moment. And we will have that constancy, whether it's worshiping Him in, in the place He's prepared for us, or coming back and serving Jesus in His millennial kingdom, or adoring Jesus right on into eternity. Revelation 21 verse 3 confirms this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. Yahweh Shema. The Lord is there. And that is how Ezekiel concludes this declaration of inheritance. Yahweh Shema. It's the perfect ending because Yahweh Shema is how the inheritance is given. What do you mean? I mean there's only one way to get an inheritance. Somebody has to die. And Jesus died. That Israel and the Jew that I also will have our inheritance. Praise the Lord. Father, we thank You for Your Word tonight. and We ask, Lord, that You will give us that joyful expectation we talked about on Sunday. 
that we would look forward to all these things that you have so intricately and explicitly revealed to us. I pray, Father, my brothers and sisters, as well as myself, will be chewing on these things and thinking about them through the week. We ask, Lord, for this great uh, gift from You, this one gift we ask tonight, that You would be Yahweh Shema, present in our lives every moment. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.